I don't care. 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 These these three words are the words of destruction. These words I don't care are used quite often. I got in the habit of when I faced a difficult challenge or any type of controversy that I wouldn't or couldn't figure out, I would just end it with, I don't care. I learned. I don't care. While coming to terms with who I am, these words became my safety to deal with any obstacle bigger than me. To say I don't, I don't care, care relieved me of the feelings of failure, disappointment, accountability, ownership, responsibility, and decision making. When my wife would ask me what I wanted for dinner, I would say cheeseburgers and fries. But then she would say, I'm not really feeling that. So my answer would end up in, I don't care then. When faced with making the wrong choice and being told about it or held accountable for my choice, and it was the wrong choice, my answer would just end in, all right, I don't care. When faced with rejection by a woman, my feeling would end in, all right, man, I don't care. It's her loss. I began to live my life defined by this reality or feeling by saying, I just don't care. See, many of you believe. I don't care. It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal to feel like you don't care. And yeah, maybe so. But when you use these words as a way of life or escape, then they become a part of you. These words, these words, these three words became a part of me. And these words um, began to take over my life. And I began to live my life like I just didn't even care. These words for me began my path of destruction. So again, close your eyes and go along with me on this journey. I don't care. Rejection. You see, I received nothing but rejection from the cool crowd in school. You know, the cool kids. You know, all the kids that got it going on, got the newest clothing. You know, they know how to dance. They look good, got jewelry, cars. They didn't have nothing to do with me. I had none of that. (laughs) It was hard for me to make friends. I just didn't fit in with the people I wanted to be friends with. You know, I didn't have the the newest hairstyle and I didn't have the body, the the muscle bound body. I was a skinny, dark skinned, tall, non-dressing, nappy headed, chocolate young man that had no (laughs) 
that had no um, self uh, worth. Um, I got in the habit of just trying to be nice. I just started trying to be nice so people would just barely like me, talk to me, deal with me at all. You know, I hated feeling rejected, hated it. I can remember I don't care. in elementary school, I was probably um, kindergarten, um, living in Omaha, Nebraska, going to a school called Franklin. It was down the street from our house. Yep, I got to tell this embarrassing story. I was bullied. I had a bully. And you know what? It was a girl. <laughs> yeah, I was bullied by a big old black girl. Yeah. And she would just torment me every day. And it was winter time. And, you know, we had to walk home from school and walk to school. And walking home from school, this girl would throw me on the ground in the snow and put my face down in the snow and just rub and throw snow all over me. And I would get up crying. Yep, I was a crybaby. Truth be told, I'm still a crybaby to this day. But hey, we'll we'll talk about that another day. <laughs> I don't but yeah, care. I would go home and I would just be crying, crying, crying. My mother would, "What's wrong, Adrian? This girl, she, she, she threw me on the ground and and, and put snow all on me. And Mama, she's just so mean to me." Mama would warm me up, make me some hot chocolate. Rub me, make me feel loved, and tell me I will be okay. But my sister, my oldest sister, mm -mm, she wasn't having that. She wasn't having that. My oldest sister would start to walk toward my school because she she got out of school earlier than I. and So she would start to walk toward the school to get me. Mm-hmm. And wouldn't let nobody touch me. Yeah, my sister was my protector. <laughs> she made that girl get I up off care. me. Yeah, I was protected by my sister. And she dared anybody to fool with me. And to this very day, as I sit here and record this podcast for you, if you come for me, my sister will meet you. <laughs> I don't care. Yeah. I know. I wasn't a tough guy. I was a nice guy. Um, I would be nice to the ladies and try to win them by being nice. Um, My looks didn't do it. My talent didn't do it. I was not talented. I wasn't smart. I wasn't the the, the most popular guy. I, I was really nothing to the kids at school. But, you know, I would try to get girlfriends, y'all, and you know what I would do? I would just be really, really nice. Mm-hmm. Yep, I would be nice. And all that would really do would put me in the friend zone. <laughs> so the girls still didn't want to fool with me, but they wouldn't really crush my 
um, my ego at all. That if I had an ego, they wouldn't just destroy me. They would be nicely putting me down. Oh, Adrian. Oh, you're just so, you're just like my brother. You know, you're just such a nice guy, you know. I, you know, you're so cute. And wouldn't give me the time of day. <sighs> Rejection. See, I just kept getting rejected. Um, I wasn't the smartest kid in the class, and... I was, you know, I was always in a hurry, you know. I didn't have patience, and I still struggle with patience. But I wasn't the smartest kid in the class, and and I had a problem with rushing through projects. I remember in shop class in middle school, uh, one of my friends, um, you know, we would make little little, uh, trinkets and little things in that class, and my stuff never came out right. It never came out right. You know why? Because I was always rushing. And you know what he nicknamed me? He used to call me Rush Job. And if he's listening to this podcast today, he's probably cracking up. (laughs) Yeah, because if he see me at the grocery store right now, if he saw me at the local Walmart or whatever, wherever he sees me, he'll call me, hey, what's up, Rush Job? Because I was always in a hurry. I'd be the first one completed. And my project will look the worst. I would be the first one done on my test, and I would get the worst grade. I'll be the first one done with my homework, and I would have a horrible uh, score. I was always in a hurry to be the first one done. I was always in a hurry to get it over with. <laughs> yeah. I had a speaking problem. I had a problem with, you know, speaking and talking about my thoughts because I was always in a hurry. You know, my mouth would be moving faster than my mind. (laughs) And if some of you are paying close attention to this podcast, I still wrestle with that to this day. (laughs) But I'm just a little bit more mature. Yeah, I I had a speaking issue. I I would talk faster than my mind would go, and I always had an answer, and I'd always be popping off at the mouth, and I kind of talk a lot. And my dad would tease me. My dad would tease me because he couldn't stand it. Adrian, slow down. Think. What are you trying to say? Daddy, you know, I would be so excited and I'd just be moving so fast and I just couldn't help myself and I'd just be talking, talking and it's not making any sense. Everything coming out of my mouth just doesn't make any sense and I'm just talking. I'm so excited. And he says, slow down, boy. Sit down. You know what? Just tell your mama. (laughs) My dad would say, just tell your mama because she's the only one who understands you. And you know what? He was absolutely right. My mother would let me be me. She would let me talk and ramble and do all of those things. And at the end of it, she acted like she understood every word that came out of my mouth. And she was so supportive of me and my speed talking and my uh, not making any sense in what I'm saying, talking. And she would make it make sense for me. What Adrian was really trying to say is this. And what Adrian was really trying to say is that. And if you're around me and my mother to this day, she will still do that. 
if I say something that you don't really get, my mother will correct it and make sure you understand the words that is coming out of my mouth. <laughs> I love you. I love you, mama. How do I deal with the feeling of not being enough? Not being enough. How do you deal? How do I deal? How did I deal with the feeling of not being tough enough? Not being strong enough? Not being cute enough? Not smart enough? Not talented enough? How do I deal with that? The answer is easy. I didn't know how to change any of these things. I tried being tough enough and smart enough and strong enough and smart. I, I tried all of those things. I tried to get better, but I couldn't get better. I was never enough. And so I was left with, I don't care. Yeah, eventually. Yeah, eventually. I found peace in having this attitude of, I don't care. But the truth of the matter is, I did care. And most of you out there listening to me today that are saying you don't care, you don't care that your wife cheated on you. You don't care that your husband cheated on you. You don't care that your children don't respect you. You don't care that they don't call you. You don't care that they don't talk to you. You don't care that your credit is bad. You don't care that you don't make enough money. You don't care. But the truth is, you do care. It's just easier. And it um, gives you more peace to say, I don't care. I worked at being better in every area of my life. But if it seemed as if it wasn't going to happen or I wasn't going to win or I wasn't going to be able to accomplish my goal... I would sink my chest in and just walk away with the attitude of not caring. It, it began to become easier just to not care. See, I couldn't even handle, I couldn't handle the pain caring caused me. I couldn't handle the pain it caused me to feel, to care about something and then fail. I couldn't handle failure. I couldn't handle feeling like I really cared about something and then I couldn't do it. I couldn't handle it. I didn't have the skill to handle rejection and to stay positive while being rejected. So it was easier. It was easier for me to give up than to work through the obstacle. See, I was a hard worker. That's how I made the basketball team. Hard worker. Really? I wouldn't work hard enough to work through this obstacle of not being enough and being rejected. I would just give up. You know, being a nice guy, I saw some fruit of that. Being a nice guy helped me deal with things easier because if I was nice, at least when I got rejected, people wouldn't be so mean about it. My girls wouldn't just make me feel horrible. They wouldn't just say, get away from me, Blackie, or get away from me, you ugly. They would just say, Adrian, you just, you, you, you know, sorry. You know, you're just not my type. 
but I love you. You're a great person. I just, you're just not my type. They wouldn't hurt my feelings is what I'm saying. It's easier uh, to be mean and rude to a jerk or, you know, mean and rude to a person that's not nice than to a person that's being nice to you. I learned that very early in my life that if I would just be nice, maybe I'll get accepted and maybe I'll have a few friends and maybe girls would like me. Maybe my dad wouldn't make me feel like an idiot. (laughs) Maybe if I was a nice guy, kids wouldn't bully me and pick on me, talk about me. Gang members, you know, gangs started rising up when I was in uh, junior high school and high school and they would jump on you and take your shoes and take your coats and all of that stuff. Maybe if I was a nice guy and I befriended the gang members, they wouldn't mess with me. (laughs) And this is really funny. It worked. Being a nice guy, it worked for me. It kept people away from me. No one tried to hurt me. No one tried to harm me. The girls let me down easy. I would kill people with kindness. I would kill them with kindness. When really in my mind, I was hurting. And I was upset. And I lacked self-confidence. I began to be manipulative. Because you think I'm being nice. But I'm just really trying to get you to be cool with me. See, I made the basketball team my sophomore year in high school because, not because I was talented. No, it wasn't because I had the talent. You know, I couldn't hit a 15-foot jumper. I was horrible at layups. I wasn't that good of a basketball player, but I did work hard. I made the team because I outworked every other guy. They were lazy, and I worked harder than them. And working hard got me all the way to varsity, as I've told you before. And I was happy about that, but I really wanted it to be because of my talent. I wanted to be like the the, the shooting guard, and I wanted to be like the three-point shooter. And I'm, I'm not trying to call any names out. I wish I could, but these guys know who they are. My teammates, they know. I had a lot of respect for them, and I wanted to be better than them, but I wasn't. But I did work hard. I wanted to feel good enough. I wanted to feel like I was enough. So I learned by being a nice guy, I could get some things. But all this did was teach me how to be manipulative. See, y'all, I could manipulate my way through because I would use a smile and a soft voice to show no aggression. And it worked. It worked for a lot of my life. Until the real Adrian started to poke his head, his ugly head up. And that Adrian wouldn't rest any longer. See, don't let the smooth taste fool you. And just because I'm smiling, it don't mean anything. Because I'm more serious than I'm ever playing. The first time. I could really remember, I can really remember the very first time I remember really feeling rejected where it really, really bothered me. You know, I I could handle the rejection in, in high school and middle school. I mean, you get used to it. 
you don't like it, but you get used to it. It's not the end of the world. Um, and then when I started playing basketball and people did start, you know, allowing me to hang out with them and things of that nature. And I thought I was, you know, trying to, I was thought I was in the in crowd, but I really just wasn't. I was really just a nice guy and they didn't want to hurt my feelings, but I was really, a, you know, a nerd, not a smart nerd, you know, just one of those annoying nerds. You know what I'm talking about? That was, that was me. <laughs> but when I can really feel the pain of rejection and my nice guy attitude didn't work anymore. It was in my local church. Mm. Now listen to me. See, when I was in my, you know, teenager years and, you know, I was growing up and yeah, all the all the ladies of the church, the older ladies of the church, you know, they all loved me. You know, I, I like to eat. They'd always make sure I had food to eat. Uh, I always had a smile on my face. I was always laughing, having fun, and they just loved me. You know, they loved little Adrian Goodlow. Oh, yeah. They just loved me. And they loved me so much that they would say, Adrian... I'm saving my daughter for you, man. I man, you just don't don't you be with nobody else. When when my daughter when when my daughter gets older, when you're ready, my daughter's gonna be for you. Yeah, they wanted their daughters to be my wife. I was a good guy to them. I, you know, Adrian was a sweetheart. Oh yeah, they loved him some Adrian. Until, remember what I told you in episode two? Until I got my girlfriend pregnant. Yeah, and when I got my girlfriend pregnant, yep, all that, all that other stuff, all that good stuff changed. <laughs> and once the church folk found out I had a child on the way and I wasn't married, same people who loved me, same people who, you know, spoke all very highly of me. Yeah, them same people I spent all of my time with, you know, uh, I was at the church most of my time. I mean, I cut grass. We were in our YPPU sessions. We did youth group. We did church. We did Bible study. We did everything. We were there. All my friends, the people I really knew were in the church. I mean, it was a good time. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the church yeah, with these people, and I loved them. These people took care of me like I was their own. But when I got my girlfriend pregnant, they were all disappointed. And they would say things to me like, I'm glad it, it ain't my daughter. And I'm glad you ain't with her. Boy, I would hurt you. And she would be getting an abortion. Oh, yeah. Rejection? That's when I felt the ultimate rejection because the people I thought would be there for me no matter what, the people that I thought would love me through anything at that time in my life, I thought that they, you know, would forgive me, act like nothing ever happened, but they turned their back on me. And my nice guy issue, my nice guy image was shattered and it was shattered forever 
I'm not blaming my church family for my behavior. Don't get me wrong. I understand. I mean, some of the young ladies did like me, and their mothers threatened them. Don't you dare mess with that Adrian Goodlow. Don't you dare mess with him. You better not. <laughs> yeah. My nice guy image was shattered. And it was shattered forever, but... My church family isn't the problem. It was my behavior. I'm not blaming them for my behavior. But they uncovered the truth. Yep. It was my nice guy image that helped me to even get my girlfriend that later became my wife and the mother of my children. Yep. The nice guy, the nice guy got her. Because it definitely wasn't my looks. <laughs> it was the nice guy. And I did get her pregnant. And I did know better. And I did put her in a compromising position. But not only did I put her in a compromising position, I put myself in a compromising position. I put my child in a compromising position. But when you're left alone, and your world is turned upside down, the church is where you should be able to run. I was taught to, to love and that we are to love and not judge, but there I stood, judged and condemned. And all I could say is I don't care. See, I lost my mind. <laughs> I lost my mind. I shaved my head bald. Because remember, I told you I was nappy head, little knuckle head, little. I think my dad would say, you know, you got a $50 hat on a $5 head or something like that. But I shaved my head and I got cute. Oh, yeah. I got cute. Women loved the dark skin. I don't know what happened. I think it was Michael Jordan, as I said before, but. The women love the dark-skinned brothers, you know, the shaved, bald head brothers, earring-wearing. Yeah. They love that Adrian. The Adrian that, you know, got a little bit of swag about himself. See, my girlfriend, you know, she helped, she hooked her brother up. She started, you know, buying me some name-brand shoes and, like, helping me get my wardrobe together. And, yeah, she, she got me looking all good. Oh, yeah, I thought I was it. <laughs> I thought I was the stuff, if you know what I'm saying. I was never a drinker, never a smoker. But, oh, yeah, I began to drink alcohol. And I began to smoke. Oh, yeah, I thought it was cool. My reason for smoking, I thought it would turn my lip black. Because remember, remember I, I've said I, I had a pink lip. <laughs> And everybody that I knew that had smoked, their lips were dark. So, yeah, I thought it was cool to smoke, and I thought it would help turn my lips black to where I wouldn't be talked about anymore, having a pink lip. Thought it would make me that much more sexy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, I was getting a lot of attention. A lot of attention that I never, never had before by women. 
and I began to play. Oh, yeah, I had a good time playing and cheating on my wife. Mm-hmm. Yep, any woman who gave me attention, I would go in for the kill. Still using my nice guy image. Oh, yeah. Using that nice guy swag. Making them think I would marry him. Making them think that, you know, you're the best thing ever happened to me and I just can't live without you. Oh, yeah. I would do anything for attention. And I would do anything to not feel rejected. So... Um, Instead of being the person that was getting rejected, I began to become the person who issued rejection. And you know what? It felt good. I would get a woman all worked up, get her all thinking she done met her her prince charming, thinking that she done met her king, and I would leave her hanging. Leave her wondering, where did he go? What happened to him? With no no answer. Wow. Wow. I was a complete mess and an absolute jerk. See, women were a challenge. It became it began to become a game to me. I just wanted to see if I could get her. I just wanted to see if I can get her to want me. And when I was satisfied, I'd drop her. Go back to my normal life until I needed another fix. It's crazy. So embarrassing talking about this right now. Horrible. Not proud of this at all. Not proud of the things I've done and the places I've been. But I have to tell you and I have to be transparent because a lot of you are in the same boat right now, today. Listening to me, you can relate and, you, and you're in this position right now causing nothing but pain and destruction because you don't know who you are and you are lashing out and it's all because you don't care and you don't care about your life and you don't care about the lives you're hurting. See, I wanted to have a family. I wanted to have children and a wife. I was raised like that. I had the American dream. My parents, I had, a, I had a father and a mother at home, and they had children, and they took care of us, and they fed us every day. And we had love, and we had a life. But I was so messed up. I wasn't ready, and I was too messed up to be anybody's husband and to be anybody's father. But I was both. I was a husband and I was a father. And I didn't know what I was doing. And when you're, when you're on a road of destruction, you take those who love you the most with you. Because they're just trying to save you from dying while dying themselves. I created myself a heavy weed, marijuana habit, and partying lifestyle. See, I became addicted to it. Not to marijuana, but I came, became addicted to the lifestyle. I needed it so bad. It made me feel good. That sounds so crazy, doesn't it? 
hurting people and hurting myself made me feel good. Hmm. Can any of you relate? I would spend my whole paycheck. Every week I would get paid on Friday. I would spend my check on going to get me a new outfit, not buying clothes for my kids, not paying bills. No, I would spend money on clothes so I could look good. And yeah, every now and then I'd buy my kids some expensive clothes. Yeah. No, it wasn't good enough. I would be out at the bars all weekend drinking. Hated for Sunday to come because, you know, the bars were closed. On You know, you didn't go party on Sunday night, not in Kansas City. Uh, but we did, and I'll tell you about that later. <laughs> but no. Um, Friday night, be out all night partying until the bars closed. Saturday night, out partying all night till the bars closed. Monday morning, got a dime to my name. Broke. And I did this for many years. And I functioned pretty well. And I got used to my life. And not caring and destroying a lot of things. But it really didn't hit me. It really didn't hit me until I was faced with something that would change my life. It would change my life forever. See, in the year of, I believe it was 1999, the Goodloe family, we will receive news that would change our life forever. In the year of 1998, my father, he began to lose strength in his left arm, and the doctor, his doctor, thought it was a pinched nerve of some sort. Um, they did tests. They worked on him. They um, um, attempted surgery on him and thinking that that would resolve his issue. But it didn't work. And, and he continued to, to lose strength. And they continued to run tests on him and try to figure out what was going on and correct the issue. Well, in the meantime, my father, he lost the ability to drive um, because he, he couldn't use his arms. His arms were losing strength, and so you, you need your arms to drive, and his legs started to become a little bit affected and losing strength in his body. And, and see, my dad, my dad was a strong man. Um, he lived his life very well. He worked every day. He was a leader. He worked day in and day out. He would work if, if it was bad weather bad weather. He would work good through the good weather. He worked overtime. He took care of his family. He worked in the church. He helped build the church. He did. I mean, he was always working, building his family. Yeah. He lived well. He was a leader. He was a leader's leader. He led, he led our family. Um, he led our church. And he loved his wife. You would think that a man of this character would not have to deal with anything 
anything like this, anything this serious. But of course, God wouldn't have let anything, wouldn't allow, wouldn't allow anything bad to happen to him. Well, his local, his local doctor suggested that um, he would go to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, see a specialist to figure out what's going on, to diagnose him, to get a resolve. My dad asked me to drive him because he couldn't drive himself, and so to me it was an honor. It was an honor to do anything for my father. See, my father, you know, he really didn't, he really didn't ask anybody for anything. I mean, and for him to ask me, it made me feel like I was on the top of the world. <laughs> he wouldn't ask anybody for any help, especially his kids. His kids didn't, he didn't need his kids. We needed him, right? So we we take off and we drive to Minnesota for his first visit and it was a good visit. They ran tests on him and everything like they normally do. We returned back to Kansas City feeling very skeptical or very good, it would say about the visit and and we continued with business as usual. You know, life continued to go on and uh, my father continued to get a little bit worse. So we went back. Um, we went back to Minnesota to the Mayo Clinic for another visit and to go over his test results. Well, um, I remember this like it was yesterday. We we walk into the doctor's office and uh, my dad is sitting in the chair. Um, my mother is standing up and has her hands on his shoulders. I don't remember on, on my father's shoulders. I don't recall the doctor's name. Um, I don't remember his name. But I remember that he had no compassion or feeling in him. And he sat down next to my father. While I stood close by. And after, doc after the doctor briefly looked into my dad's looked at my dad's legs and he briefly looked at my dad's body. My dad's legs, his muscles would jump, you know, um, like a spasm. And after he looked at him um, with no compassion, um, he looked at my dad in his face and told him, you definitely have a motor neuron disease and it looks like ALS. He told my dad that he was pretty sure of it and that my dad was going to die. Yeah. My dad, being the man that he is, asked the doctor, is there something else that can be done? The doctor said no. My dad said, well, how long do I have to live? And the doctor said, it's hard to tell, but no longer than one year. I was standing there, not really believing what I was hearing, um, but more. So I was very, very angry, and I was angry at the doctor 
because I thought he should have showed my dad some more respect and some more compassion while telling him that his life was over. My parents, they are amazing. They are amazing people. They're strong. And after hearing this news, they didn't bat an eye. They didn't lose their composure. They didn't cry. They didn't act crazy. They wasn't rude. My dad stood up and I put his coat on him. And we left that hospital with our heads held high like good lows and headed back to the hotel. And my dad and I, we, we walked around outside of the hotel a little bit and we just enjoyed our time. We just enjoyed each other and we laughed and, you know, my dad had a dry sense of humor. And we didn't even really talk about it. And he didn't talk to me about anything. And, you know, we ate. We got our things together. It began to get dark and we got in the van and um, we headed. We started to head back to Kansas City. It was a real, a real quiet trip. My parents didn't talk much. And I was listening to music as I was driving. You know, they had cassette tapes back then. I believe it was Timothy Wright singing Trouble Don't Last Always. I'm so glad trouble don't last always. You know. We love gospel music. Oh, yeah, I would listen to gospel music. Even partying, I would be listening to gospel music. Ain't that crazy? Well, um, we needed to stop and get gas. And I told my dad, you know, we need to stop and get gas. And he told me, well, stop at the next gas station and make sure it's well lit. Don't stop at any place where it's like some old dark town where there's only one gas station there. We couldn't stop there. Make sure you stop someplace where there are some people. <laughs> and so I stopped at the next gas station. And I remember this so vividly. That as I stepped out of my vehicle, after, after, as I stepped out of my dad's vehicle, and I wasn't quite out of the van, my dad turned to my mother and said, well, what are we going to do now? I'm going to die. And he began to cry so hard. My mother, my mother dropped to her knees. My mother dropped to her knees in the van and she held him and they cried together. Mm-hmm. 
And I had never heard my dad cry before. Not like that. Not ever. Never saw him ever drop a tear. I remember when my dad's father passed, he came to give me the news. And I started to hug my dad and he pushed me away and turned and walked away from me. I never, ever have ever saw my father show any signs of sadness. I never saw him cry one tear ever. But while I pumped that gas, him and my mother had their moment in that van at night in between Minnesota and Kansas City. And I remember feeling so angry and I was afraid. It was crazy because by the time I got back in the van after pumping the gas, getting the receipt, it was as if nothing happened. My dad had his complete composure. My mother sat in her chair and they laughed and they had a good time the rest of the trip home. My dad was an amazing man. We returned to Kansas City and I remember telling my oldest sister that my dad cried and that he was seriously sick. And we were having a family reunion uh, on my mother's side at that time when, when we arrived back into the city. So my parents waited a couple of days to talk to us about things. So after a few days, after the festivities was over and my parents um, got us all together and sat us down at their home. We were all around the dining room table. And my dad gave us the grave news that his diagnosis um, was that he had Lou Gehrig's disease. He had ALS. And that he was going to need our help. And that there wasn't a cure for it. And that he was going to die. And we all were in shock. I just didn't want to accept it and I didn't understand how God would allow this to happen to him not him not my dad 
he didn't deserve it. I told my dad that he didn't deserve that. Nope. I told him that I did. That I deserved to be in that position. I've been living a horrible life. Not paying my bills. Not being who I was raised to be. Not taking care of my family. I was wrecking everything. With a smile on my face. Smoking weed, getting drunk. A worthless life. I told my dad, he... He didn't, I deserve that. I, that's a punishment. And my dad said to me, Adrian, why not me? Am I too good for this? He said, I wouldn't worst, sorry. He said, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. Dad was an amazing person. Strong. A lot of faith. And he would let nothing beat him. I wish I could be half the man my father was. I said so many crazy things to him that at this time of my life, right now today I know was very disrespectful but at the time I didn't know any better I was so full of myself I said to my dad there ain't no way you haven't cheated on my mother no way because all kind of women want me and I ain't nothing I ain't got I have horrible credit I ain't got no money I ain't got anything but women love me Daddy, you got everything. You're a good-looking man. You got good credit. You are, you know, you, you're a wonderful person. You can't tell me you ain't never did nothing. He said, Adrian, I got better morals than you. <laughs> and he did. A hell of a man my dad is. It was asked of me. Um, years later, by a good friend of his, Adrian, would your dad be proud of you? Now, I looked at him in his face and I told him, yep, my dad will be proud of me now. I felt that God was obligated to heal my father. And as I write this story to you all, as I'm talking to you on this podcast, I would, I'm telling you with my heart filled with love and, and I'm a whole person today. I can honestly say that at that time in my life, see, we was praying hard for my father. But I'm going to tell you something. That at that time of my life, 
I wasn't praying for my dad that he would be healed for his sake. I wanted my dad to be healed so that I didn't have to deal with the pain of losing him. That's how selfish I was. My father was a strong man and he wouldn't let us cry over him. He wouldn't let us feel sorry for him. And he was a man that took death like a champ. And on January 24th, Two thousand and two, my dad passed away and left this world by his choice. And all I can remember about that morning getting that call from my mother to come to the house was just getting off of work. I I worked nights at that time. I came to my parents' house and my dad laid there in his bed with no life in him. And I kissed him on his forehead and I told him I loved him. And I walked out of the room so angry. I was angry at myself. And I was angry at God. And I slammed my fist into everything that I came close to. I walked outside. I got in my truck. And I cried like a baby because my dad was gone. And I had to deal with the pain. And I didn't know what to do. And this is when my I don't care answer and attitude went from words to action. And I began to live a life without a care for anything or anybody. And and it was sure that most was going to hate me very soon after this. I don't care. Who, who are you? It's, it's the process.